Today's episode is brought to you by VM Wasik, financial system strategists for Shopify sellers. Veronica Wasik and her team at VM Wasik help Shopify sellers to set up, organize, and streamline their financial systems. Whether you're looking for DIY, done with you, or done for you financials. Check them out at vmwasik.com. Thank you so much, VM Wasik. And now, here's the show. Welcome to episode 176 of the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Craft Industry Alliance is a community for craft professionals where you can strengthen your creative business, stay up to date on industry news, and build connections within our supportive trade association. Check it out at craftindustryalliance.org. Today on the show, we're talking about building a life and career as an artist with my guest, Courtney Cerruti. Courtney is an artist, collaborator, and editor-in-chief at Creative Bug, an online arts and crafts education site. She's authored five books, one of which was released earlier this year and is called Make Art Where You Are. And her new one, One Color a Day, releases in September. She's a new mom, but still attempts to do something creative every day and can be found on Instagram as at CCeruti. Courtney Saruti, welcome. Thanks so much, Abby, for having me. Yeah, it's great to talk with you. And I'd love to start kind of back in the beginning. I'm wondering where you grew up. Did you grow up in San Francisco area? Yeah, I am from the Bay Area, from Oakland, so East Bay for anyone who who knows. Um, Yeah, it's an awesome place to be. Um, And what did your parents do for work when you were growing up? Oh, that's interesting. I feel like both my parents are very creative people in different ways. My dad is an entrepreneur. He comes from a line of entrepreneurs. He owns his own vending business, which is kind of an unusual business that people never think about until you hear it. Um, And my mom, you know, she stayed at home with us when we were really little. And then when I was in junior high, she got a job at a party supply store, which was awesome for her because she's obsessed with Halloween And she loves to make things, although she does not identify as a creative person. She's like one of the most creative people I know. And she would make little displays for her sections. She did a lot of the buying at the store. So she also loves to shop. So it was kind of the perfect job for her. And she did that um, for decades until my brother had his daughter. And now she watches my niece. Oh, nice. Yeah. And did you guys do creative stuff at home when you were growing up together? Yeah, you know, I don't have um, a ton of memories of the two of us sitting down necessarily. My parents have always been really supportive of crafting and kind of the arts. I did a lot of like after school classes and programs for that because our, you know, the public school unfortunately doesn't have a ton of that going on um, naturally. But my parents have always been super, super supportive. So helping, you know, ferrying me from one class to another after school. Um, I would say like the influence from my parents is pretty balanced. Like I definitely have, I'm definitely my father's daughter thinking about like, what is the practicality of this situation? Um, and how, not so much, how do you make art into a business? But he always was like, you know, when he found out I was going to be an art major in college, he was like, okay, but like, you know, how are you going to pay for your health benefits? And like, what is your retirement going to look like? So I, I definitely have my dad's voice in the back of my head half the time. Um, but then my mom, when I was growing up, I would always hear her like tinkering in the kitchen. The kitchen's like her art studio and she, she loves to cook, but she also would be doing other things. Like I remember her making all these fake cakes for her, um, wedding section at the party supply shop. And she was putting plaster into piping bags and tinting it and making like cakes out of styrofoam and, Things, you know, this is all before Pinterest existed. My mom doesn't know how to use a computer. Um, She just kind of like made these things up and executed them. And of course, there were these big Halloween parties where she would do a lot of building and making as well. So I grew up with that around me, Mm -hmm. for sure. Okay. Wow, that's pretty cool. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And was this like an independent party store? This was in like Party City. No, it was like, it's a family owned shop. It's uh, local to the Bay Area. There are three of them. But yeah, it's all family owned. Yeah. it's it's a kind of a weird dynamic, like for whatever reason, I think, you know, the pay isn't amazing. And so they employ a lot of sort of like women 
I would say mostly like moms whose kids were high school or older than, so you know, not moms that had to be at home during the day. And then a lot of teenagers. So it was like a very interesting dynamic. Interesting. But my mom loved it. It gave her like a sense of purpose. Like she loved the shopping thing. So she could do a lot of buying for the store and then an outlet for making things, you know, and displaying them. Yeah. Yeah. That's it's pretty interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and you and we'll talk about this later, make all these sets. So there's definitely um some tie in there. So yeah. Um yeah, pretty cool. Okay. And so it sounds like you did go on um though to to be an art major in college. And um is that what you set out to do or did you kind of fall into that once you got there? Yeah, I think I knew what I wanted to do pretty early. I mean, when I was super little, I wanted to be an architect because I was obsessed with my Legos. But when I when I was probably about the second grade and I was like, God, architect is so hard to spell. I can never spell this. And then I realized you had to have math involved. I was like, no, I don't want to be an architect. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think I'm trying to remember. I In high school, I was very focused um, in on making art. And that's like what I spent all of my free time doing, like a lot of drawing. And I didn't have really the confidence, though, to, to exclaim, oh, I'm an artist. And I think even in college, I struggled with saying, like, I'm a painter, even though that's what my major was. I didn't, I chose not to go to an art school. I went to UC Santa Cruz, um, because I thought at the time, I wanted to do both art and anthropology. And I'm, I'm happy that I went to just a, um, a kind of general education university as opposed to an art specific school. And my thinking behind that was that I was going to get a more well-rounded education. And I think, you know, all in all, I think it turned out pretty well. Um, but yeah, I knew I always wanted to be a painting major. I didn't know what I was going to do with it afterward, but I, I knew that's what I, that was like where my passion lied and what I wanted to study and focus on. Okay. For sure. And yeah. did, did you do the anthropology too? Is like a minor or no? Oh, you know, I think I just had a really bad experience. You know, you think, at least in my public high school, I mean, we didn't have anything even remotely close to an anthropology class. So this was just pure speculation that I thought this is something that I would be interested in. And I took my first like giant, you know, first year anthro class. Um, there was like 350 people in that class. And, you know, the instructor was her first year um, teaching. And I just don't think I got a good survey. It felt like regurgitated colonialism. I just felt like this is a, an offensive topic. I just felt like the, <laughs> the lens with which I was being taught about other cultures and yeah. peoples and their history. I just was like, this is, I can't even, this, it just felt so outdated and not relevant. And I thought about doing like a, um, kind of a women's studies minor. And I wound up actually probably, if you added all my credits, I probably wound up doing almost a minor in French instead because I did my study abroad for a whole year in France. And so you had to have that as a requirement. So probably my second most concentration of classes was likely in French. Oh, um, I see. Yeah. And yeah, so I didn't wind up doing the anthropology. And then when I left um, after I graduated UC Santa Cruz, I thought I was going to be a librarian. I'm obsessed with the library. I'm super interested that in that as a space and the way that information is organized. Um, and I wound up applying for that for grad school and then deciding like that's that is mostly right now. Um, and even then, this was like 10 years ago, 15. Oh, my God, like 15 years ago, I think. When did I graduate college? <laughs> no, yeah, it was in 2005 when I graduated college. Um that major is mostly done online and I really enjoy being a student and being in school and I didn't want to do a master's degree that was entirely online. So I decided not to be a librarian either <laughs> and right. I didn't go to grad school. Okay. Yeah. So what was your first job out of college? I'm wondering kind of what your path was that led you to Creative Bug. Yeah. So this is interesting. I've reflected on this, um, you know, in working with interns and people that I've mentored and just in my own thought process, like, how did I get to where I am? And I realized that everything I've done, I would say 80% of the time intentionally was to get me closer to the things that I thought I wanted to do. And then 20% of the time influenced what I do now, but it was not anticipated to do that. Like I didn't go into it thinking like, oh, this is going to help me get to where I want to be. So just by happenstance, there was a woman in our neighborhood who ran a telecom training community. Um, sorry, she ran a telecom training business. So that means like when a school district or a city government buys a new phone system, they would buy like a Cisco phone system, which is basically like a mini computer. 
Um, and then we would deploy these phones and then go and, and train the staff. So enti- entire school districts, entire cities, um, law firms we did. And I would go in and train like these CEOs um, and these staffs on how to use their phone, like how to set up their voicemail, how to transfer calls. I was like 20 at the time. And I topically that has no interest for me whatsoever, but being super young and going into these like really high powered environments and training on these multi-million dollar phone systems, I think is what gave me the confidence to start teaching workshops. And it seems like a very random connection, but I, I honestly think that it helped me tremendously gain the confidence to feel like I had the authority to go in and teach people about the stuff that I made. And, you know, that kind of, um, that along with the fact that I used to throw bookmaking parties in college and teach people kind of informally, I think the combination of those two things like really allowed me to kind of like pitch my first workshop ideas. So I did that for a year after college, um, just because like I said, she lived in the neighborhood and, um, I moved back home for a year trying to figure out what I wanted to do next since I decided not to become a librarian. And I wasn't sure if I wanted to major in painting and do be a painter as a career. And then I did like a lot of retail stuff. I always wanted to op- like open a shop or have a shop. And so I worked at Paper Source. Are you familiar with Paper Source? Yeah, yeah. And I've had um, Elise, I, I'm sure you're familiar with Elise Blaha Kripe, but she also worked at Paper Source and, and like sort of credits that time as being really, um, really important to her sort of um, next steps in her own career. So absolutely. I feel like there are these. I just keep coming across, especially women, um, I don't know if it's in the Bay Area or just in general in creative fields, who have worked at two of the places that I would say definitely made a difference in my path, and that is paper source and anthropology in the department. So I I was at paper source. That's where I taught my first workshops, my first formal workshops. I was the assistant manager there. I did my first window display there. This was before paper source was kind of – it was kind of at the transitional point where the owner had shifted. I think they brought in a CEO from Gap and they were becoming a little bit more structured or corporatized, I guess, but there was still some leeway on an individual store basis. And so I got to do a lot of creative stuff. I also in high school and through college always worked at bookstores. And so I did also do like little signage and display and stuff there. Um, And that probably like fed my book love. I'm obsessed with books. I have way too many books. I feel like half my life I just been moving around books. That's what I do. (laughs) It's like my other part-time job, moving around my own book collection. Um, So yeah, paper source. And then I wound up working at this little independent shop in the Bay Area where I did some buying. I organized some events. I started their blog. Um, again, this is kind of like when blogging was was already established, but we didn't have Instagram or any of that stuff yet. And then I left there to go do Windows and Anthropology, which put me back on 4th Street in Berkeley. So I was at 4th Street um, in Berkeley at Paper Source, left, and then came back to work at Anthropology, which is literally next door to Paper Source. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. And Anthropology like- is such a creative environment. Yeah. You know, that um, every store has its own culture. I would say that the culture at my store at the end was pretty toxic. And I definitely only had a limited amount of time there. I was there for about a year and a half. Oh. But the thing about Anthro that is amazing um, especially for the display coordinator, which is the that role that does the windows and all of the in-store um, creations and signage and lighting. You do all of that, like every little detail. What's cool about that is that unless you are a famous artist who works at a you know on a museum level, it's very rare to be able to kind of think of an entire space and have it be your canvas. I got to work in just massive scale um, art making, which is really unusual, like I said, unless you have a, an opportunity to do a museum installation or you have some massive barn somewhere or something. Um, and it really taught me, I would say, you know, for better or for worse, the thing that it really taught me that I've taken away from that is that like, I can do anything, I can make anything, I can transform any space. It really made me realize like how possible, um, my own talents and creativity could make anything happen. And how much direction were you given? I mean, this is, you know, things change, but at the time you were there um, from like a headquarters or did you really have free reign? That's a great question. And that's something that people always want to know, right? Because so many people shop at Anthro because of the visuals. And I have to say, like for a corporation, they have it really dialed in on, on how inspiring they make their space. Um, So it's kind of like a recipe 
what happens is I, I don't even know how many stores Anthro has, probably like 500. And every single space, physical space, every shop is totally different, right? But they need to have some cohesiveness amongst all of the stores. So what they do is they would take a concept and send you like a booklet of inspiration or a binder of inspiration. And then from there, they would have a handful of display coordinators in some of the top stores prototype it. So let's say they gave you a concept, um, I always liken it, like I said, to a recipe. So if you say like, okay, you're making an omelet, then these like display coordinators would be like, okay, I'm making an omelet, but I'm using different ingredients, or I'm making an omelet, I'm making it just the way that you kind of rolled out your information. Or someone might say, I'm going to take all your omelet ingredients, but I'm not going to make an omelet, I'm going to make something totally different. So you kind of had this direction, you draw all your sketches, you submit them to your kind of manager and your district manager, and then you execute and you have a budget. And your budget, unfortunately, your budget is not based on the size of your store. It's based on your, on the power, um, you know, and the sales of your store. So we had a really, really large space, uh, but we weren't a super high volume store. So there were, you know, we had our challenges, but it was, it was pretty nuts. I mean, from, from there, you're just like, okay, you're on your own, like, figure it out. I didn't have a lot of training. I mean, I trained with a local, another display coordinator for a couple of days, but, um, you know, you do a lot of building and a lot of figuring it out. And luckily my store was down the street from a hardware store, um, building like an independent building shop. And I asked the guys there like so many questions. I built a little house inside Anthro for one of the displays. And I remember being like, how do I frame out like a tiny shed? Like, how am I going to do that? And, um, I just asked a lot of questions and a lot of people helped me and I just, you know, I learned a lot on the, on the job. Yeah. That's so, so interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And so, right. And so you, you gain this, um, understanding of your own ability. It sounds like from that experience. Yeah. And that's, those are the things that are most valuable about any experiences. Like what can you take away from it that will help you, you know, strengthen your character, boost your confidence, um, increase your skill set. Like those are the things that really I would challenge like anyone to to take away from any situation, even things that you think like, Oh God, how did I get myself into this? Like there's always something to learn and to take away from the the scenario. So there are parts of anthro that were amazing and there are parts of it that were super challenging. But, um, I would say like, yeah, just knowing that within me, I have the capability to do, to make almost anything just like that was super valuable. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So after that, um, year and a half, um, what, what happened next? So that's when things, um, a lot of things started to come together. So I had kind of like built up a background in retail. I had this um, display kind of under my belt. I'd had the taste of working at a corporation and also working at a really small store and the kind of autonomy I was afforded in both of those environments or lack of autonomy, depending on the situation. Um, And so then I went freelance, which felt really scary. I was probably like, 25 somewhere between like 25 and 27 at the time I had also just gotten out of a really serious kind of relationship that had blown up in a very dramatic way so felt like a real like potential like time for me to sort of reinvent myself or figure out what I wanted to do and I had some friends um who had started a wedding business and I kind of went to work with them there were two women so together it was the three of us And I took sort of my display skills and my visual language capabilities and did what I was doing in Anthro, but for the wedding world. So just like a lot of custom lighting pieces I made or a lot of things that needed to be made on site day of. And that was really fun because it was just a small team of the three of us um, that kind of swells during events because you hire all these freelancers to make florals and install lighting and all this other stuff. And that it's very intense um, and really fun. And I did that for a couple of years. And at the same time, I started teaching workshops um, at San Francisco Center for the Book, where I had been taking workshops since I had gotten a license. So through high school and college, I took a lot of classes there. It's a local, fabulous, amazing space um, that focuses in bookmaking. And then while teaching workshops, Um, I was teaching also at Scrap randomly, which is like a place where people donate art supplies and it's sort of like a thrift store for art supplies and they also have a workshop space. So I'm teaching there one day and um, the workshops coordinator is like, you know, so there's this woman who's interested in workshops. She's going to sit in 
in your class. And I'm like, okay, great. Yeah, no problem. And this like really tall blonde woman who's like very commanding is like sitting in the back of my space. And to be honest, it made me a little nervous because I was teaching this kind of wily class with like kids and adults and, um, people are all using different materials because they're sourced from the store. And it was like, I was like, Oh my God, this is not the best showing of my teaching. But the woman was super impressed and she was really excited. And her name was Jean Lewis. And she had this idea for a company called creative bug. I want to take a minute now to hear from our sponsor, VM Wasik and the founder of VM Wasik, Veronica Wasik. I'm Veronica Wasik and my business is VM Wasik. And tell me a little bit about what VM Wasik's um, all about. Sure. So um, we are accountants, but we're very different types of accountants because we do everything very modern and cutting edge. And I also decided to focus my business on helping Shopify sellers with all of their accounting and setting up all of their financial systems. Wow, that's great. So who are your clients mostly? Who do you like, like to work with? Well, I love to work with creatives. So that's my passion because I'm also a creative and I find that there are a lot of creatives uh, selling on Shopify. And of course, now there's so many um, crafters and makers making the pivot to selling online. Great. That's great. And um, what are some of the challenges that you find that um, creative people generally have with getting their accounting in order? Yeah, there's so many, but typically, and and especially for Shopify sellers, it starts with all of the app integrations, and and especially when it comes to their financial system. So um, integrations with QuickBooks, their inventory, managing sales taxes, and really getting a clear view into their profits, because uh, when you sell online, all the the, uh, income that you receive is net of fees and other deductions. Great. That is so important. I'm so glad you're offering this service because it's something that so many people need. That's really great. So um, how can people get in touch with you to find out more? Well, you can visit my website. It's vmwasek.com. And we'll have the link um, uh, for you guys to to check that out. I also have a YouTube channel and a blog. And you can look for that under 5-Minute Bookkeeping. Five-minute bookkeeping. Okay, super. So we can find some content there to just kind of get started. Yes. All right, great. Thank you so much, Veronica. This is terrific. Thank you, Abby. Thank you so much, VM Wasik. And now back to my conversation with Courtney. You know, she got my number. She seemed, like I said, very serious about pitching this idea to me. And she asked if we could get coffee like the next week. So I remember like meeting her at La Boulange in Russian Hill. And um, she told me all about this idea she had for a site that was based on lynda.com and Etsy. Like if Linda and Etsy got together and had a baby, it would be creative bug. And she at the time she had two young kids. She was also working with her partner, Julie Rome, who was pregnant and had also a little boy at the time. And and as new, as you know, moms of young children who also were interested in creativity, they really could only access education in the middle of the night. And so, like, where was the site where they could go and find, you know, how to make a scarf or how to start a new project while their kids were sleeping? I mean, you know, honestly, how you started your podcast, right? Like, while she naps. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, same thing. Like, how can you shove in creativity while your kids are asleep? And so, that's that was the inspiration for Creative Bug. And she asked if I would be an instructor on the site. And I was like, yeah, this sounds amazing. Um, so, I was the fourth artist that they filmed. And they were really figuring stuff out. You know, they had gotten their first round of funding. Um, They had just moved into an office space. We didn't even have a studio built out at the time. It was just part of the, like, open office area. And it was in the design district in San Francisco, um, just a block away from San Francisco Center for the book where I was teaching all the time. So I was super familiar with the area. And I was freelance. So it was interesting because the foundation of Creative Bug, we started eight years ago. I've been there since like basically, you know, day 30 or something since the beginning. Um, they were figuring out their filming style. They were figuring out, you know, who they were working with, how they were going to work together. And because I was there and because I had this kind of varied skill set of, of teaching, of doing sets, of working with artists, um, just in through my workshops and through paper source, they were like, you know, 
they kind of asked me or we, we were able to sort of establish what Creative Bug was going to be while I was there, which was really awesome. And because I was freelance, I had the opportunity to be able to be flexible and work with them. And so I started sort of as what we now call the artist coach position. But at the time, it was kind of like director, nebulous, like we would film with instructors and no one would be there to help them. No one would be there to help them clean up or set up or get them what they needed. Um, nobody was there listening to their language. We just had like all these camera people who were really focused on angles, but not really on what the artists needed to communicate in the class. And so I started doing that. And then we also kind of realized like, oh, we need like a better background. We need like some consistency. We need someone to like change the backdrop for every artist. So I was like, oh, yeah, I can, you know, I can build sets like I used to do giant displays for anthro. So that's not a problem. Um, and so I did both set design and artist coaching as Creative Bug, you know, went in and out of different ownerships and as we moved offices and as we grew and changed. And um, I've done that consistently until like two years ago, basically, when I became editor in chief. And I still do the sets, though. I still <laughs> I still do the sets for every artist that we film with. And we probably have about 3000 classes on the site and about 120 artists that we work with. Wow. Yeah. And you, you, you're like, you've been like, uh, you've been like instrumental to the, to the building of the site. And I wonder when, back when she, when, when Jean first pitched this to you, did you have any, I mean, you know, the internet or online teaching, let's say, was still kind of new and, or at least it was new enough in craft, you know, like yes. there weren't, established sites in craft where this was happening. And so were you at all kind of like hesitant that people would would sort of jump on the bandwagon as consumers to take online classes in craft? Yeah, you know, I think Craftsy, which became Blueprint, which is now becoming Craftsy again. Yep. I think they launched like six months right before Creative Bug went live. Although, of course, we were, we were already building and filming and working on it in the background. Um, and there was some like alarmistness with like, oh, God, this other site made it out there into the world before us. But then we were like, oh, this really establishes our right to be here. You know, like this is this is clearly a growing interest in and a new field. And we're super excited to be kind of in the founding amongst the founding companies who are launching these online craft um, classes. And as an individual like instructor, at first I was like, well, at first I thought like, what an amazing and equitable way to share information. You know, I think when Jean first pitched Creative Bug, it was $24.95 a month for all of our classes, which then, I mean, we probably had 60 classes on the site. Now we have 3,000 and it's four ninety five a month. So it's been interesting to see. Yeah, just the, the, the equation, right, yeah. the, the, it has really changed. And it, it is interesting because I think in some way, somebody might think that would have flipped that what you have right. over 300 classes, it would be more expensive, but it's right. less expensive now. You know, the psychology of that, I think, is constantly under question, because there are instructors who film classes for themselves and will offer one or two classes a year and they will be very costly but they include different things like they might be multi-part over several weeks they might include um live conversations and one-on-one -on -one engagement yeah i it's interesting because there are so many variations of that form out there and then of course you have youtube where there's free content um and in the beginning you know i was excited about the accessibility, I thought that was amazing for people who couldn't afford to take, you know, a $200 workshop um, and drive to a certain place or take this time off or whatever. I really liked that about it. But I did also think like, oh, my God, you know, I teach my image transfer class constantly. It's always sold out. It costs, you know, X, Y, Z. And now people can access it anytime for a third of the cost. Is that going to yeah. cannibalize and I what think, I do? I think that was a really big threat and maybe it continues yeah. to be, but I know for instructors, but, but also for shop owners and work workshop spaces, um, that yeah. felt really threatening. Yeah. And I think that's valid because it's like, it was, like you said, it was new and, um, and I think people were speculating, like, how will this affect, you know, my own practice of teaching or, like you said, workshop spaces. But I, in the eight years that we've been doing this, I would say, you know, a huge number of the artists we work with, and myself included, still teach their in-person workshops. And if anything, they complement one another. 
um, for image transfer specifically, which is the thing I really started teaching and I wrote my first book on. And it's something that is like still one of my most, um, still one of my most favorite topics to teach and, and talk about and, and, um, engage with people on that information can be very dense. And I think having an in-person workshop is very helpful to like see, and experience alongside an instructor and other students. And then having the Creative Bug online class is a is a nice way to kind of like re-familiarize yourself with the techniques if you haven't picked it up in a while or um, just kind of get back and be re-inspired. And so I think those things can work hand in hand and I find that they do. I mean, so many of our artists teach exactly what they teach on Creative Bug in, in in-person workshops and it hasn't changed their enrollment or their engagement at all. And if anything, it just kind of helps um, students like refamiliarize themselves with the techniques like a month or two after when they aren't going to sign up for the workshop again or they you know they don't have the capability of but they can sign on to the class and feel like they're you know learning about crochet with cal patch or um you know learning how to stamp fabric with jen hewitt like i think that's that's the awesome thing about online education yeah no i think it um makes it that person even more sought after i mean that's i to me that's what the result has been um, yeah. I understand the the concern about it, but the, what I've what I've found from the consumer side is that people will say, "Oh, I've seen you on Craftsy, or I've seen you on Creative Bug, and so I sure. want to see you even more in person." Yeah, there's like a visibility thing. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that's true. I also, I'm sure this piece of advice has come from many different sources, um, and I'm trying to even remember. I'm trying to remember even where I first heard it, but I feel like it rings really true, which is just that like, if you're a creative person, like giving away your information and your craft in whatever capacity, whether that's paid or free, that generosity really is the best uh, way for you to keep your creativity flowing. And I find that that's super true. Um, like when I'm excited and passionate about a process that like sharing it makes me even more excited. It makes my brain and the wheels turn even faster and seeing what people do with it makes me think about what the next step in the evolution of the process is. And so like being, I, I totally understand the fear of like guarding information or your technique or your style, but sharing it, I feel like really allows you to move one step forward. Um, and I find that with so many of our artists and instructors. And when a lot of uh, people we work with, you know, come back and teach again and again with us. And I, you know, my first question is always like, what are you excited about? Like, what are you doing right now that you might want to share? Um, and I feel like that, that generosity of information just like benefits everybody. And Creative Bug is now owned by Joanne. And yes. I mean, there, there were other owners prior. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. There was venture capital and that ends up um, meaning that the, you know, investors need to get paid back and, you know, need to see a return on their investment. That's the way that these things work. Um, so anyway, but now you've landed with Joanne, which um, to me seems like a good place to be like it seems like a good home because there's synchronicity there and also it seems to me and correct me if I'm wrong but it seems like they've left you alone if that makes yes. sense and yeah. and I I guess I have a lot of respect for them for doing that um, yeah. and keeping their hands off to the degree that they have and allowing you to be autonomous, I liken it to the way that Jeff Bezos has left Tony Shea alone, you know, like Zappos is Zappos and they just left it, they let, they let Zappos be and I feel like they've let Creative Bug be. But anyway, I'll let you speak to what's happened. Uh, no, I mean, I think that's a great observation. Um, I think I want to say that Joanne's has owned us about two and a half years now and it really has been the best fit so far. Um, we've been bought and sold. This is our third time, um, you know, for various reasons, whether it was like financial reasons or kind of company alignment um, and just, you know, all of the stepping stones to get here were necessary in our growth. But I really feel like Joanne's has been the best fit. And, you know, in all transparency, initially, we definitely had some artists that we worked with who, you know, own small fabric stores or yarn stores. And they were like, oh, God, Joanne's like this big box store. Like, are we now, you know, are we no longer aligned as um, artists and companies? But I have to say that uh, Joanne has taken a very hands-off approach as far as like our content. We've never been told you have to do this. You have to work with this person. You have to use Joanne products. We've never done that. And um, 
that feels good to us because like, you know, the Joanne product is not often what we use. I mean, in some cases it's great and it works well and um, that's fine, but we've really been allowed to keep our creativity, keep our relationships with our artists just as they always would have been, even if we were independently owned. And that's been awesome, but we've had their support, which is also great. So if there is a partnership that feels like a good match, then it's allowed us to move forward in a way um, that we maybe wouldn't have had we just been our, our own entity. Um, we're a really small team. I think that, that like people don't realize it cause we do put out content every single day with our daily practices. We literally re- release a class every single day of the year. Um, and outside of our daily practices, we release one class a week, um, in a different media, you know, whether that be like crochet or sewing or whatever. And like our team total, including our developers, including content, including, you know, editors and all of that, um, is like 12 people. So, we do a lot. We're like very small, but very mighty. And, um, it's nice to have a bigger company to support us when, you know, we need an extra resource or something. So, yeah, yeah it's which, really well. I, which I will say, like, just in comparison, so Craftsy and its heyday, um, had about 200 employees. And so that just right. so people can know the difference there. And also, and I'll say this, and you don't need to say this, but you know, when, when Craftsy was bought by, by Comcast, by NBC Universal, you know, you can think about what happened there as far as the change right. in business model where it went from a la carte to subscription and also the change in content type where it went from these really deep dive classes with specialists to what they called sort of layback content where it was more like infotainment um, and the yeah. types of classes that they were, they weren't even classes, the types of shows that they were making then during that period um, and sort of the relative <laughs> sort of less successful um, stuff that sure. they were they were pumping out at that time and and what happened in inevitably then when you know NBC lost the Olympics due to the pandemic etc and then they just trimmed around the edges and they trimmed it and that was the yes. end and so um and then they got bought out and and now they're you know owned by a different company and so anyway when I think about when I say that I think Joanne's is a better more synchronistic partner that's why I say that Totally. I mean, yeah, I I think I, I mean, I have very little complaints. I think it's been a really good match. um, And we feel lucky to be supported by them. And, you know, lucky to be, like you said, pretty autonomous. Um, You know, I get to work with the artists that I want to work with. Nobody's told me no, you know, no one's told me no, you can't work with that person. Or, you know, can you do this instead? Or, you know, can you use this kind of yarn because it's on sale or something? Like, n- no, none of that yeah. has happened. But I, I which mean, it's been awesome. Right. And I do hear, like, I did get those emails from artists um, who were creative book artists when the buy, when the, when the sale mm. first was announced, like, oh my gosh, like, right. Um, but I don't think it's panned out to be bad. So interesting. Yeah. Um, so yeah. getting back to sort of your career. So now you are editor in chief. And I just wondered if you could tell us briefly, kind of like, what does that mean? Like, what is that? <laughs> job because when we hear editor-in-chief we think of a newspaper right editor-in-chief of the new york times or something like that or um you know editor we think of a um maybe at a a, an imprint of a publishing house the person's an editor but but it's hard because there's not necessarily like what does that mean when you're the editor-in-chief of a of a you know a video class platform you know so what does that mean that's an excellent question and i think we're trying to define that all the time you know this like really speaks to our sort of scrappy beginning. And there are some ways that we still feel like a startup even eight years into this process. Um, So our original editorial director who did not exist, that position did not exist, you know, in the first year, it kind of came in on the second year, it was um, Kelly Wilkinson, who was amazing. Um, And she came from a radio journal background. Um, She did, I think she did like an internship with PBS. And um, she was like, not a broadcaster, but came from that background of like radio, I would say, but she also had made a craft book. And so she was, I don't know how the titles exactly worked when that started, if she chose that title, um, or if that was given to her. And then when she left, uh, Lee or kind of, there was a switch over and Leanna became our editor in chief, but I believe I'm trying to remember what her exact title was. I think it was editor in chief. And that was because I don't know, I think they decided on that. And Leanna did come from a publishing background. So she was Melanie Fallick um, from STC craft, which is an Abrams imprint. She Leanna was her like right hand 
woman. You know, she was um, like the head editor there under Melanie and she came from the publishing world. She'd been always been in publishing until she started working with Creative Bug. And then because we were owned by Joanne, there was like some kind of fiddling with the title. So I could be like the director of content, but we don't have director titles at Creative Bug because of the way the Joanne system works. And so it's editor in chief, which is like, I think I said, I think is what Leanna's title was before me too. So it is kind of funny because I would say that that title comes with more of the publishing world because we also have editors who are video editors and that is its own specific technique and talent that has nothing to do with content creation in the publishing sense or in the sense that I work with it. So, you know, I don't know how much the title really matters. Basically what I do is I choose who we work with, what they're going to teach and, um, kind of our editorial strategy for the year, the content that we want to get. And I work a lot with our partners, um, on creating content together. So that dovetails into marketing a little bit. Um, you know, I work with Katrina, who is our, I think her official title is creative director on the look and feel of the site. And because we are a small team, we're all really working together to kind of refine and make the best product ever. So, you know, we had this big call this week um, about what we want to focus on change wise. And it, you know, it could be anything from the way that people engage with the class page on the site to updating all of our images on the site to be more inclusive. You know, there are a lot of things um, that we are able to do and able to do more quickly because we're a smaller company. So I kind of am working on all the things, but the main thing is really just like what it is that we're filming, who we're filming with and how and when it gets released. Okay, great. Is that, yes. does that feel like a good? A hundred percent. But yet you also have your own independent, I mean, it's amazing that you're able to do this because that seems like a giant job. Um, just to me as a person who runs my own small team and my own company, um, <laughs> I just think that sounds like a huge job. But you have your own art practice and your own um, uh, sort of jobs that you're doing for that. And so um, I kind of want to go toward toward talking about that for a little while. Um, you've designed fabric, for example, over the last several years. And um I wondered if you would talk a little bit just about what you enjoy about that and um, because that's different from making from painting, for example. Um, And um, I know you you did some fabric with Anna Maria Horner um, as part of her conservatory um, that she does for Free Spirit. And um, and that's neat because she really does work with artists and then she helps to take artwork that they create and then make them into surface design. So you don't necessarily have to be, you know, great at creating repeat patterns and that sort of thing um, in (laughs) order to, in order to do that sort of partnership with her. Yeah. Um, Yeah. It's interesting because I, when I started Creative Bug, it was because I was an artist. And in the early days, there was some conflict there. It was like, you know, is Courtney working on this thing that's on her own or is this thing for Creative Bug? I mean, all of that kind of weirdness has been ironed out many, many years in the making. Um, And I feel like the balance is very clear now. I mean, the reality is like everything I do services everything else that I do. And being an editor in chief at Creative Bug is a tremendous job. But the fact that I'm a practicing artist immersed in the community allows me to meet artists that I want to work with at Creative Bug. Um, And all of it feeds into each other. And if you can set up a life for yourself where that happens, um, maybe initially you make it happen and then eventually it will organically happen. That is the best way, I think, for me, for a creative person. I mean, you know, Abby, like with all of the people that you work with for yourself and um, for all the, you know, artists that you interview, like creative people really have to cobble a life together because it's not, you know, artists are not a recognized crafters. Creatives are not a recognized field in this country that is really like does not equate celebrity does not equate giant checks, you know? And so to really dig down and be a creative person every single day and make it your career and make it your livelihood and figure out how to pay your bills and figure out how you're going to have healthcare, like, all the things you need to bring together. And so I'm super fortunate that Creative Bug can be my full-time job, but I seriously, I wake up every day and enjoy the process. I love who I work with. 
Um, and I feel very like honored and lucky to support all these really super amazing, talented artists and help them get their creativity out into the world. And in doing that, I've made a lot of amazing connections, both like I said, these things have just crossed over, like in my personal life, my kind of art professional life and my creative book life, all of those things have really emerged and continue to do so. Anna Maria Horner is somebody that I started my relationship with through creative bug, although I was, I was familiar with her work much earlier than that. I mean, I used to buy her fabric when I was in college and I would make quilts. Um, and so the first time we went to film with her was at her home in Tennessee, which is just amazing, spectacular, like a visual feast. Um, she has seven children. It was honestly the calmest household I've ever been in. And I realized very quickly in talking with her, um, that she kind of had this life that felt very similar to my own, um, or like kind of what I was aspiring to do minus the seven kids. I'm a little old to start my seven kids just now, but, um, she, she had a shop with her mother when she was very young. She, it has an amazing or had an amazing painting practice and I think majored in that in college. And so she had all these incredible paintings in her house that she had done. And then she did surface design. She'd been making fabric for years and years and years. Um, she opened craft South in the time, you know, that since I had met her and many years later. Um, and so she kind of had all, had all these interests and things that were very similar to my interests and things that I wanted to do. Plus that foundation of painting in the background. And Anna is like, an amazing businesswoman. She's very driven. She's she does so many things. I don't even know how she does everything that she does. And at some point, she decided that she wanted to work with people who had this painting foundation and see what they could do with fabric. And that is how I started designing the fabric, um, which has been like a lifelong dream, just like writing books. These are things that I thought, okay, these are never going to happen, but they're like on my bucket list. And then just one little thing led me to a next thing. And then, you know, this opportunity presented itself and Anna reached out and said, like, I'm pitching this idea would you be interested in being one of my designers and I was like oh my god yes I you know I was so honored to be asked and working with her has been super amazing and like you said I don't I'm not amazing at making repeats I try every single time and every single time Anna has to like tweak a few little things and make sure that everything is perfect um but it's been a super amazing experience and I just feel super lucky that I've been able to do it and you know, my mom, like literally my mom is making like a new duvet cover for a room in her house and she's using my color wheel fabric that just came out. And that feels pretty amazing. <laughs> I love the ladies print. The ladies print from yeah. the long distance collection is so yeah. awesome. I bought some of it when I was in um, Portland, Maine. And I didn't even know, I didn't know it was from the conservatory. I didn't know it was from you. I just found it in this fabric shop in Portland. And I was like, this is an amazing print. I have to have oh, some of awesome. it. And so, and then later I was like, oh, look at the salvage. I had no idea. So, right? yeah. yeah. It's interesting how you can connect the dots. I feel like that happens so much in, in the creative world where I've had something where I'm like, hey, your name sounds familiar. Oh, wait a minute. I just found this last week and now I'm meeting you in person. And, <laughs> like the stars are aligning, you know? Yeah, yeah, totally. So um, I want to make sure we definitely um, talk about your books. There's other things we could talk about. Um, but I, d I definitely want to make sure we have plenty of time to talk about your book. So um, so I want to first talk about Make Art Where You Are, because um, this is a book that um, is still new. And it's a pretty cool book, because it's basically like a guided sketchbook. And yes. um, what I think is really neat about it is that, um, you know, I think a lot of people well, we procrastinate really from doing the things that we want to do the most. And I'm not exactly sure why that is, but we always sort of feel like, oh gosh, um, I don't have the right tools or I'm not in the right yep. space or whatever. Yep. And the whole goal of this book is to say, don't do that. Just um, take five <laughs> yeah. minutes and take the things that are right in front of you and whatever you're looking at right now and just make art where you are. Yes. Yes. Um, I feel like I'm constantly trying to learn this lesson and teach myself this lesson. And, and I feel like it's something that everyone struggles with is like, you don't have to have hundreds of dollars of materials. And when you if you do have those, you're too afraid to use them anyway. And you don't have to have this perfect studio space, you know, up until this, like, literally this year, I made all of my art on my kitchen, my kitchen table, which is very, very small. Um, and 
the thing is like it's it's hard and scary to dive in you have this idea in your head of what it is that you want to make and how it's supposed to look um and all of that really is not important the important part is like exercising the muscle you know um that could be like literally with your drawing hands or your painting you know muscle memory for painting but it's also just the creativity muscle so like in this more abstract way it's about just doing the thing every single day and i sa- i say this all the time in my in person workshops and when i teach on creative bug it's like brushing your teeth. Like if you just really got down to it, nobody really wants to brush their teeth, but because you've been doing it every single night since you've had teeth. So for me, that's, you know, like the last 37 years, you feel weird if you don't brush your teeth before you go to bed. And if you create a habit for yourself with making art or with drawing or with any creative pursuit, that same like missing feeling, or sometimes it can be guilt too, will creep up on you. You just have to establish the practice. And before you know it, you will like just fold this into your daily life. And if you don't do it, you'll really be like, hey, I didn't get a chance to sit down and paint that color. And I really need to do that to make myself feel like whole before I go to bed. And that's really important because, you know, in the many years that I've been teaching in-person workshops, I encounter so many, it's usually women who have not either been encouraged to kind of um, delve into their creative side or after a life of like raising kids and having a career. Now they're like giving themselves permission to sit down and like explore creativity. And I think it's because... I mean, there are many reasons, but um, I think part of the reason or one of the reasons is that is that people at some point in their life realize like what is valuable, what is worth spending your time on. Your time is actually your most precious commodity. And how do you want to spend your time? And when your kids are out of the house or when your career has shifted, that's when there's an opening and the pandemic is a perfect example. You have this kind of forced opening of time and how are you going to fill it? And that's why this book is really great right now, especially, although of course I didn't plan it that way, is that you know, you may only have your kitchen table, you may only have your backyard to make your art in, but that is as good a place or an experience or an inspiration as any. And you should really just get into it and make that blind court, blind contour drawing and start there and just see where it leads you. Yeah, gosh, that's so, so true. And and for me, a big struggle is putting down my phone. Because I oh, find yeah. like, you know, I'll want to, like, I'll have the desire and I'll be like, I should draw. And then I'm like, but it's easier to just scroll. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. And it's so, there's like this, it's like this awful sort of like resignation of like, I could use the next 15 minutes to draw or I could just give in and just scroll. You know what I mean? Yes. I mean, everyone falls prey to that, myself included, but I have to realize like how, how just the intention of just a quick little check-in on Instagram can easily take 30 minutes to an hour of my time. And before I know it, it's like time to go to bed. And I don't have that much time. It's like a couple hours after the baby goes to sleep before <laughs> before I need to go to sleep. So um, it's really about maximizing the time that you do have. And there is also like I have it myself, you know, I'm like, oh, I want to do something. But like, uh, what is it that I want to do? Uh, like now I have to think of what it is that I want to make. I mean, usually it's the opposite. You have like a, a list of things that you wanted to do and you never have the time. But um, if you just sit down and make a mark, then that will lead you to the next thing. And sometimes, you know, sometimes you sit down and make a five minute drawing. It's not amazing. Don't expect everything that you do to be amazing. But like it's just that practice or creating that habit so that the next time you have 15 minutes, your instinct is not to pick up your phone. Your instinct is to pick up a colored pencil or your paintbrush. Um, and I know I was talking to August Wren, uh, Jen Orkin Lewis. This was many, many years ago. I was in New York visiting Rebecca Rehnquist, who's an instructor on Creative Bug and one of my good friends. And the three of us got together to do some like sketching together, um, which Jen had never done before. I think at that at that time, she was like, oh, I've never like really made my art in front of other people. This is fun. And she said to herself, like when she had set out to do her a drawing a day for every single day, and like I said, this was many years ago. I think she's done this project many, many times since then. She said, like, even if I just put a mark on the page, like I'm going to commit myself just to put a mark on the page because some days she would get really bad migraines and that would be even really a challenge. But she's like, I have to do just a mark. But she said that it would always lead her to a drawing or some other place. And then before she knew it, she was sitting down and making a painting. And I feel like that's a good thing to remember um, because 
it's hard to get there to set yourself down to make the mark. But once you've done that, the hardest part is over. And now you can just kind of like move to the next step. And that's what the book is really for is like to help you know, get you making really quickly without a lot of pressure and give you some easy tools um, to create things that are visually interesting without feeling like you have to have a ton of background in technique or painting capability. And tell us about the new one because the new book sounds like it's right along those same lines too. It totally is. It's funny because um, so this new book is called One Color a Day. It's a fill-in journal. So the idea is that you sit down, you paint a circle of color. You can use markers or colored pencils. Um, I, I, I approach it with watercolor, and that's kind of what it's designed for. And one line for every single day of the year. And this is based on a project I did in 2017 called The Colors of 2017. And this is because I also wanted something um, creative to do, but I didn't want to necessarily sit down and paint a face every single night. I had, I think I was in the middle of like two sort of very intense painting um, bodies of work. And this was like, I want to be creative. I want to keep up my painting practice, but I don't want to sit down and do something specific. Um, And I had this book idea and I was working with um, Kate Woodruff at Present Perfect Lit. And she's a book agent. This is my first time working with a book agent. And I said, you know, like, I feel like I I really like in my teaching practice, I want to get people confident in their capabilities of making. And I want the barriers to be very low. I don't want it to be expensive. I don't want it to be super time consuming. I just want to get them engaged and help them build their confidence and their creativity. And for me, I've always struggled with keeping a sketchbook. And when I go back to ones I have kept, I'm like, oh, why didn't I do this every single year? I'd have 10 of these, you know? And this practice of sitting down to do a color and a line kept me going and having, you know, I would grid out my pages like a couple months in advance and just knowing that that book was ready for me and all I had to do was sit down and paint a color. It really created no excuses for me to engage. And so I was talking to Kate and I was like, I feel like so many people, you know, there's this interest in watercolor. People are very intimidated by it, but this is such an easy way to engage and teach yourself a little bit about the medium without feeling the pressure of having to paint something recognizable. And so she really helped me craft that idea into a book proposal. And in doing that, we sold both this book and the Make Art Where You Are um, to Abrams. And yeah, this year has been crazy. I mean, I'm bad. Ways. but you know, 2020 started with I had a baby on January 3rd, it's my first child. Um, and then I released a book six weeks later. And now, you know, the pandemic was hitting right after Make Art was released. Um, I also have a shop and a gallery with my friend Christina um, Diaz. And we had a flood, the pandemic shelter in place happened. Since then, we've, we're now closing the shop, sadly, because of COVID. Um, the pandemic is in full swing. And now I have this other book coming out in a few months. And 2020 has been a year, just a year. I don't even know what else to say about it. It's been amazing and terrifying and scary and new and just all about change, you know? Yeah. Just all about change, both good and bad. <laughs> so the new book will be out in September. So people yes. can, um, and I'll put a link, but people can um, go on Amazon and maybe pre-order Totally. Hopefully. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's it's for a year, but it's not dated. So you can start it anytime. I'm trying to figure out when I want to start it. I'm like, do I want to start at the first of the month? I just want to start it tomorrow right? because I got my preview copies already. So I'm like, when am I going to start mine? I think I might start it today. Oh, fabulous. <laughs> yeah. It would be a great holiday gift. It sounds like too. It's going to be. Yeah. And I like this is actually both my sister-in-law, and my mom, um, their birthday's in September and we're doing a little Tahoe trip. And so this is going to be my gift to them. This, a paint set and sitting down with them to kind of help them establish their practice because neither of them like my I said my mom is like one of the most creative people I know but she she always says oh I can't draw a stick figure I'm like okay that doesn't matter <laughs> but so she's been curious about painting but she doesn't have the confidence to start so I'm hopefully going to help her start and then my sister-in-law is just curious and so we're gonna I'm hoping that for the two of them I can get them started <laughs> yeah this is what they need Um, All right. I want to get to your recommendation. So um, it sounds like you are reading um, two books that you wanted to recommend. Um, One of them is called Algorithms of Impression of Oppression and one of them is called Mudlark. Yes, and I'm actually reading a third one. Oh, you can add another. Go ahead. (laughs) Yeah, Parable of the Sower by Octavia Butler. And I feel like all three of these books – um, are really feeding me in different ways. But um, I read a lot of books. I listen to a lot of audiobooks. So Parable of the Sower, I'm actually listening to on Scribed, um, which is a, a an audio app. But um, Mudlark is awesome because it's um, about a woman who 
combs the shores of the Thames in London. Uh, it's contemporary. It's nonfiction. And there's a whole world of mudlarking, which is what that my um, husband has been following girl. her. Yes. I think he follows <gasps> yes. her maybe on Twitter or on Instagram or somewhere where she is online. He's obsessed with her. Yes. Yeah, it's- it's super interesting. And I actually heard the tail end of an interview with her on the radio. And that's how I, you know, requested this book from the library. Um, it just came out. And it's super interesting, because you're getting a little bit of London history and a peek into this very specific world of people who spend their days like combing the shores of the Thames and, and also about like contemporary London and like, what do these objects mean? I'm a, I'm a very big object person. I love like items that tell a story. I always feel like I'm rescuing things and they have so much history in them. And um, so mudlarking really speaks to that part of my soul and my interest in my collection. So that's been a really fun thing to read. And then I'm reading um, Algorithms of Oppression by um, Sophia Noble. Um, And that book is amazing and eye-opening both as a woman and as somebody who is, you know, always aspiring to be an ally for people of color, especially black women. And that book, um, she's a professor, I believe at UCLA, I'd have to double check that. Um, But she writes about just how information is served up. And as someone who's like a, also a huge library advocate, really thinking about how the Dewey Decimal System was created and how information is cataloged and also retrieved in the library system is really something that I haven't spent a lot of time thinking about. And so this book is calling into both like my use of Google on a daily basis and my use of the library and how things, how information is given to you already with a bias. Mm. And so like her example that she opens the book with is like when you type in black girl, what came up? And when she was writing this book and doing this research, The book came out, I think, in 2018, but the research started, you know, many years prior to that. And she talks about, you know, this is this book will be out of date almost when it's published because technology is constantly changing. But just the kind of disgusting sexualization of black women when you type in what Google serves up as a suggested search. And Mm. it's changed. And she talks about that in the book, but it's still there and it's very systemic and it totally shapes the way we consume information and and, you know, for kids who are learning about things, at, you know, for the first time and using the Internet to do their reporting or their searching or whatever to help them write their book report or learn more about a subject, these ideas visually can be very um, – they can really root into how you view people that you haven't interacted with or certain cultures or types of people or genders like women versus men. So it's super, super important for everybody. It doesn't matter like your age or your race or whatever. It's super important for everyone about how information is cataloged and given to you. So I actually – I. The one thing Instagram is great for is book recommendations. Um, And that book was recommended by uh, a black woman crochet artist. And I'm trying to remember her name. Her Instagram handle is like call me DWJ, but her actual name is Dana. So she recommended that book. Um, And I got it from the library. (laughs) And then I'm listening to Parable of the Sower, like S-E-W-E-R, like a seed sower. And that is a book by Octavia Butler, who who is a prolific female sci-fi writer. She's a black woman. She wrote a lot in the 70s and 80s and 90s. And one of my besties, Alicia, is reading that. And she's... um, she lives in Paris, so her perspective on what's happening with the Black Lives Matter movement is a little bit different than what, you know, not being based in the United States. Um, and she's uh, works in design. And so she's doing all these online design conferences. And she's like, this book is constantly being referred to. And she's like, once you start reading it, like everything is going to start popping up. There's like this whole um, set of books in that book called Earthseed. And so like it's been very interesting. I've, I've only about eight chapters into it. But um it's it's it feels like it could be happening now. What that that world that is that is created in this book feels like it's not too far off. And I kind of ironically that book is set in twenty twenty five. So oh wow, in- intriguing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's intriguing. I don't usually read books that are like sci fi future, but that sounds like one that might be. I mean, besides like Handmaid's Tale, but that sounds like it could be. Yeah, yeah. I, mm. I highly recommend it. I'm not I would not identify as someone who reads sci fi either at all. Um, but this book is super interesting. I think super important for what's happening right now. Yeah. In the same way that the tale is for sure. Right. 
Um, okay. And then you've been watching reruns of The Great British Bake Off, um, <laughs> which, okay, totally understand um, why. And you also That's just, will- yeah, to- totally understand that one. But also you've just watched um, Invisible Portraits. Oh, yeah, that that is an amazing um, documentary about the importance and the voice and the recognition of black women and kind of how they've been overlooked um, just even within their own community and the history of the United States. And just like it's interviews with black women about black women and black black girl magic and all this amazing stuff. And that that also is something I found on Instagram um, through uh, Sophia Noble's feed. She's the one that wrote Algorithms of Oppression and she is not interviewed in this movie, but she was talking about it. And so I um, watched it on Vimeo. I think it's about uh, an hour and a half long. And what's amazing is like since watching that, three or four of the women interviewed in that movie, that documentary have come up in my world um, in various ways. One of them, her name is Ruha Benjamin. She just did a virtual talk at the San Francisco Public Library two weeks ago. And she's very he- like um, very heavily or predominantly featured in this book and the movie. So it's like interesting, like once you kind of yeah, are, once your eyes are open to new ideas yeah. and new people, then you see them elsewhere and you get interested and want to see more of them. Totally. Yeah. It's, it's, it's been great. I mean, I feel like these things kind of coalesce and they're meant to come at the time that they come yeah. <laughs> to, oh. you, to you and your world. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely true. And then you've also been sewing with felt and I saw the um, Christmas stocking that you made for your daughter, Luca. Um, so, um, and I totally relate to the ease of sewing with felt where you don't have to hem any thing. Yeah, I'm loving I'm not a hand stitcher. I'm not like tidy or that patient. But um, I've been really loving working with felt because it doesn't require a lot of fussy hemming. And so I made this stocking for Luca. And I'm planning a bunch of other projects like dolls and um, interesting little things with felt. I'm really enjoying it. Yeah. Yeah, if you're, you know, tidy stitching does not matter, I guess. It's it's still working out. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Well, Courtney, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you so much, Abby. It was so great to talk to you and um, talk through all these things. I really appreciate you having me on the show. And you've been listening to the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Today's episode was brought to you by VM Wasik. To learn more about VM Wasik and how they can help you get control over your Shopify financial systems, visit vmwasik.com or download the free Shopify bookkeeping blueprint, the Shopify seller's guide to confident bookkeeping. Check them out at vmwasik.com. Thank you so much, VM Wasik. Craft Industry Alliance is a community for craft professionals. When you become a member of Craft Industry Alliance, you get in-depth coverage of craft industry news, the opportunity to connect with fellow professionals for advice and support, and access to an educational library filled with ideas, tools, and resources to help you as you build your business. Join us at craftindustryalliance.org. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.